talking about our church's core values and our church logo and why it's a table and even the word restoration church and this concept that Jesus makes all things new. And the scripture teaches us that in Christ we're a new creation and old things have passed away. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. And yet, behold, all things have become new. And yet, when we look at our lives, we're like, not really. So it's like the, all, the tension of the already and the not yet. I mean, we're already justified and made right with Jesus Christ, even while we are yet being made in the image of Jesus Christ. And we sometimes struggle as human beings to live in this tension. And what Restoration Church is all about is about embracing that tension and being okay in the tension. That's what the table is. The table is, I don't have to sit at the table with everybody who thinks exactly like me, talks exactly like me, believes everything exactly like me, and if we can't do that, then we don't have unity and we can't be at the same table. That's a worldly thought. The kingdom has far more tension in it than we like and that we're comfortable with. And so we're going to start um, a series over the next couple um, months, weeks, over the summer, and we're going to be talking about some of this tension in our lives. And we, I've, I've shared with us before over the last few years that we in the Western world have preached a gospel for a lot of time um, that we accept Jesus' forgiveness so we can go to heaven when we die. And while that may be a portion of the kingdom, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that your sins are forgiven so you go to heaven when you die. In fact, we ask people all the time, hey, if you were going to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And I think a better question might be, if you don't die tonight, do you know how you're going to live tomorrow? Because being a follower of Jesus, Jesus never asked anyone to pray a prayer. Jesus never asked anyone to invite them into his heart. Jesus never asked anyone. He never even really talked much about asking him to forgive their sins. He forgave a lot of sins, and the people had a hard time with that. But what he talked about was, hey, come follow me. Come do what I do. Live like me. And it, somehow in all of the tension of the kingdom, we've, we've kind of lost that concept. And so we, we treat the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of Jesus as just a ticket punch to heaven. And so what we do here on earth doesn't always have a correlation. It doesn't really matter. I'm just preparing for eternity. And yet sometimes in the scripture it seems like we don't go to heaven one day. Heaven comes to us one day. Now, I know that, you know, saints, when they're absent from the body, they're present with the Lord, so they're in heaven right now. But doesn't it seem that when you read some of the scriptures that heaven comes to us and we don't actually go up to heaven? And, and we don't know how to wrestle with the tension. In fact, we don't like tension. We want answers. We want black and white. We want our boxes, and we want everything to be clean. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus was pretty messy. In fact, most of us really don't even like to wrestle with the words of Jesus. We prefer the words of the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul seems clean and neat and he seems black and white. That's just because we don't understand the, the Jewishness of the Apostle Paul. And sometimes what we think is black and white isn't as black and white as Paul is as it seems in our Western mind. And so as we go through this concept, I know that for some people that sounds very scary. That's a slippery slope, Pastor Tom. This is just bad. And for some of you, you're like, wow, that sounds exciting. I like that idea. I mean, living in the messiness. And, and I'll tell you what, we've been on a journey as a church to kind of find this place and live in this place. 
Um, and it's, it's exciting, uh, yeah, and it's also grueling and tiresome and hard. Um, for 23 years that I've been in Huron, this is what we've been trying to do. And in no way, as I said a few weeks ago, do we think this is the only way to do it. No way do we say we're right, everyone else is wrong. We're just trying our best to look at the Word of God and actually apply the Word of God to our life as a church and not just go to the Word of God to, like, confirm what we already want to do as a church. Yeah, that would have been a great place to say amen. <clears throat> but, so, this idea of tension, if you think about Jesus, Jesus said, hey, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And, we're, light. and we're like, oh, praise God, yes, I want that. And then in John chapter 6, we read that, Jesus was teaching, and many of his disciples turned around and never followed him again. They said, this is, this is a hard teaching. Who can follow it? Who can accept it? So which is it? I mean, is his yoke easy and his burden light? I mean, does he give us rest, or does he give us a hard teaching? Yeah, yes. And that's some of the tension of the kingdom of God. So if you like clean boxes and straight lines and black and white, then I don't know that the kingdom is going to make you comfortable. And I don't know that this is the right church for you because um, I, I, in my own personality, I love clean boxes and straight lines and I love everything to be black and white. But I don't think it is. And I don't think that's what the kingdom is all about. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. But I have a quote that I want to start with today <clears throat> that talks about this tension and it's by a guy named J.R. Briggs. And he writes this, Jesus was the son of God and also the son of man the lion and also the lamb, the alpha and also the omega. He was both tender and firm, both full of grace and also truth. The prince of peace, who also said he did not come to bring peace on earth, but instead to bring division. He was committed to justice and also grace. Being in very nature God, he took on the nature of a servant made in human likeness. He taught people to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and also to God what belongs to God. He suffered and also it is his wounds which ultimately heal us. When creating his band of disciples, he invited a card-carrying member of a Jewish terrorist organization, Simon the Zealot. And he also extended an invite to a corrupt official who worked for the Roman government and was seen as a scandalous traitor, Matthew the tax collector. Jesus showed up at dinner parties attended by seedy prostitutes and also esteemed seminary professors. He entered Jericho, and he loved the oppressed, blind Bartimaeus, and also the oppressor, traitorous Zacchaeus, all in the same visit. Jesus lived a healthy, tension-filled life. He valued, honored, and invested in men and also women. He showed compassion for the Jews, God's chosen people, and also loved the Samaritans whom the Jews despised and regarded as half-breeds. He called people to live lives of holiness, and also he was accused of being a glutton and a drunk. He was revered as the Messiah and also called a friend of sinners. Let that sink in. A friend of sinners. The kinds of people many believers work hard to avoid, Jesus welcomed. He lived in the overlap 
in order to build bridges to bring them, all of them, together. When we are afraid to live in the middle of all the tension, conflict, and mess, we must remember Jesus still lives in the morass, and he's unafraid. Jesus never seemed to be uncomfortable living in this tension, nor did he try to tidy up the mess of all these uncomfortable contradictions. In fact, he used each one as if it was a rung on a ladder, enabling him to climb even higher in piquing people's interest and revealing his authority. So what I want us to do today, we're going to start with a question that we're going to ask today, and it's this simple question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Turn to your neighbor and say, what are you doing here? Go ahead. What are you doing here? And you're like, uh, Pastor John, I thought this was a worship service, and uh, what are you talking about? What am I doing here? Like, what am I doing in the room? Do you want me to leave? No, I don't want you to leave. You mean, what am I doing in this church? Do you want me to leave? No, I don't want you to leave this church either. I think we're the best thing out there. Um, So I don't want you to go anywhere. What I'm talking about when I say, what are you doing here, is I want us to think about today the power of our choices to lead us where we are. Because some of us are in a place and we think that we're there because maybe God has led us there and it's a tough place. And we think that we've over-spiritualized it. And we're not there because God led us there. We're there because of some poor thinking and choices. Or some of us think we're in a bad place because of things that have happened to us or things that are around us. And we discount that when he calls our name, we can come out of that grave. And so there's, there's a thing that I want to look at. There's two people I want to look at from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Um, if you've got your Bible and you want to go to 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to pick up the story there. And I've, I've got it on the screen too, but if you prefer to see it in your Bible, 1 Kings 17. Elijah and Elisha are two different prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah comes first, and he actually um, appoints Elisha as his successor later in this story. And sometimes we're confused about which is which, and sometimes we forget which story is which prophet. And I've heard pastors, I probably have done it myself, attribute something to Elijah that was actually Elisha and vice versa. And, but they, are, they could not be more different. In fact, um, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, it's told us in the scripture, he's, he comes in the spirit of Elijah. He is, he is cut and dry, black and white, Elijah. That's who John the Baptist is. Um, but I think Jesus comes more in the spirit of Elisha than Elijah. And that doesn't mean Elijah's bad or Elijah's wrong. It's just not the full picture. And sometimes in these last days, we're like, man, God's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And I don't know that God's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And I hope as you see this, as we talk about this today, that um, that that'll make some sense. But my goal today is to try not to get too teachy because I just told someone before service, I could probably do about a six hour teaching on this because there are so many rabbit trails. But I'm going to try to stay focused and I've prayed extra hard. And uh, you pray in your seats while I'm preaching. And uh, you just pray that I stay on task so that we can read this story. We're not going to read all three chapters. We're going to read parts. And then we're gonna, I'm going to make two points, and then I'm going to let you think about it, and then we're going to go home. So that's our goal. Let's see if we can accomplish it. So, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom of God's people, and he was wicked. 
very wicked, okay? Married to Jezebel. You'll find that later in the story. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, that's Elijah telling Ahab. The word of the Lord came to him then, saying, Go from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the Wadi Cherith. Wadi in the desert is just a gully where water flows through, okay? So like a riverbed that, you know, dries up, gets water when it rains, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the Wadi, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Okay, so he pronounces to the king, by the word of the Lord, there's going to be a drought. It's not going to rain till I say. And then the Lord says to Elijah, go to this wadi, east, go hide yourself over here, and I'm going to get you water from the wadi, and I'm going to have the ravens feed you. So, verse 5, he went, did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the wadi Cherith. He, he went, he, <coughs> he separated himself, he chose this solitude, the Lord told him to go there, he did. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. That's pretty cool. And bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the wadi, okay? At the Lord's command, he did this. Verse 7, but after a while, the wadi dried up because there was no rain. How do you like that? The Lord told you to go to the wadi, but you prophesied there wouldn't be any rain, and so the wadi that the Lord told you to go to dried up. I mean, we like our boxes, but there's some tension here already in this story. I mean, the word of the Lord was, let's go do this, and we get there, and we're like, wow, it's drier here than it was there. Must not have been the word of the Lord. Or was it? Huh. Yeah, tension. It's so great. I love it. I really don't love it. I'll just keep saying that all day, and hopefully by the end of the sermon, I'll believe it. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Verse 9, go now down to Zarephath. And Zarephath is actually in the northern part past the land of Israel. It's a Gentile area, so they're not Jews. It's in the land of Phoenicia. So he says, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And if you've never read this story, take time to read it. It's so cool because the widow, I love that God says I've commanded her to feed you, and she has no idea about any of it. And so when he gets there, he's like, hey, you're going to feed me. And she's like, I have enough bread. My son and I are going to eat and we're going to die. That's all we got left. He's like, make food for me first and then you'll have enough until the drought's over. And she does. Like, she's like, okay, I'll do what you say. I mean, if you're going to die, I guess it's like, well, you know, what? okay, whatever. Um, but she believes. And so it's, you know, I would expect when he comes, she like just puts a table out for him because like the Lord, I mean, the. The Lord commanded her to feed him. Why did he even have to ask for food, right? I mean, after all, if it's the word of the Lord, what do I have to do? Man, there's so much tension in this story. Stop talking. Ver okay, we're going to skip right over to chapter 18. Chapter 18. So he stays in that area for three years. His, the widow, actually her son dies. He raises her son back to the life. And for three years, he lives in this Gentile land. Then verse 1, chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. In the third year of the drought, saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So verse 2, Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Look, look at this. Now Obadiah 
revered the Lord greatly. Verse 4, when Jezebel was killing off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them fifty to a cave, and provided them with bread and water. And now the king is sending Obadiah, this God-fearing man who hid a hundred prophets, on a journey to find food for the animals. Verse 7, as Obadiah was on the way, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And then there's this dialogue that we're going to skip over, but basically Elijah says, go tell Ahab I'm here. And Obadiah's like, no way, because the moment I do, the Lord's going to make you disappear and then you're not going to be here and the king's going to kill me. He has been looking for you everywhere for three years. And so he won't go. And Elijah assures him, I am going to see him. So Obadiah goes. And, but in the end of their, con- their conversation, look at this, verse 13. This is going to be important. Has it not been told to my Lord that what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and provided them with bread and water? Okay, he's telling Elijah, I did this. Okay, this is who I am. I'm a good guy. Don't make me go do this thing. I'm a good guy. I don't want to die. I deserve to live. That's, in essence, what he's saying. So he, uh, he, Elijah convinces him. He goes. And then in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, the wicked king with the more wicked wife says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? See, it's always, always someone else's fault that we're in that position. It's not our own bad choices. I mean, you're the troublemaker. Clearly, Elijah is not the troublemaker. (laughs) But, yeah. I have not troubled Israel. You have, your father's house, because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Verse 19, now therefore, have all of Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And we're going to skip this whole story, but let me sum it up. Because some of you, you're like, oh, this is my favorite part. I know. There's this standoff at Mount Carmel where all of the prophets of Baal are trying to get Baal to send fire to consume the sacrifice. And they're cutting themselves and they're dancing and they're working themselves up into a frenzy. They're doing all these things. And obviously Baal doesn't send fire because Baal isn't real. Okay? So Elijah, during this, is actually mocking them. And he's like, you know, maybe he's relieving himself, so you just got to wait a second. Maybe be louder. Maybe he's sleeping. And he mocks them, okay? That's what Elijah does. He kind of mocks them. Then he pours water on his altar, so much water that it fills the trenches. He prays. God sends fire, consumes the sacrifice, consumes all the water. God answers by fire. There's a great revival. He kills all the prophets of Baal. He kills all of the the prophets of Asherah, and he's purging the land. He tears down all the high places, and then he goes up on a mountain, and he prays for rain, even though God said he would send rain. There's so much there. We just don't have time, Um, and he has to pray for it. Seven times he prays for it, and the moment he sees a cloud the size of a man's hand, I don't even know how you, I mean, I don't have very big hands, but, you know, even if you had big hands, how do you see a cloud the size of a man's hand in the sky and get so excited but rain comes it ends the drought praise God revival has come to the land chapter 19 Ahab verse 1 told Jezebel all that Elijah had done how he killed all the prophets with the sword Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying 
So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, can I stop for a second? It's not about her wanting to kill Elijah. If she wanted to kill Elijah, she would not have sent a messenger. (laughs) She would have sent someone to kill him. This is about intimidation. This is about he has usurped her authority and she is exerting herself, making herself big in her eyes. I don't. I don't know that she actually believed she could kill Elijah after everything that's just happened, but, you know, you can get really deceived, so maybe. But there's an intimidation factor here. And in verse 3, it works. Verse 3, then he was afraid. He got up and he fled for his life. Now remember, he chose solitude at the word of the Lord before. There's no word of the Lord here. He fled for his life and he came to Beersheba. Now that sounds great, but he's in Jezreel up here in the northern kingdom. And Beersheba, if you don't know your geography, let me help you, is in the land of Judah, which is the kingdom of the south. Still the people of God, Israel, Judah. It's a hundred miles away. On foot. (laughs) He fled for his life. He goes a hundred miles to the south, and he leaves his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so he goes further out into the desert, basically, and he sits down under a solitary broom tree, which, by the way, broom trees in the, um, in the, that area are always solitary. They're not, they don't grow in groves, so it's a broom tree. It's solitary. They add solitary, so we know. Sits under this tree, and he asks, look at the next part, he asks that he might die. Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life. I am no better than my ancestors. In other words, it's the same outcome. They've rejected me. It's lowest me. I, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. You've had like a great spiritual moment, and then the, like the next morning, it's like, oh, you know, it, it, that didn't stick. That's kind of how Elijah's lived. I mean, everything's got to be a high. Everything, I mean, we got to have, we got I mean, Elijah loves to have church. Oh, yeah, glory. We like to have church up in here. We're going to have church. And there's nothing wrong with having an exciting worship service. There's nothing wrong with a shout. But what happens to many Elijahs on Monday is they feel kind of grumpy. And as a result of their grumpiness, they treat people like dirt. They're just rude to people. They're short with people. And they're like, well, you know, I don't know. And Elijah's have to learn that everything is in a high moment, and that's okay. God can dramatically heal, restore, deliver, set someone free, boom, overnight. And yet God can sometimes deliver people over a period of like 40 years and about 1,000 to 2,000 steps. And God does both of those. And Elijah's got something to learn here, but God, being the great God that he is, doesn't just come up and... Elijah, what is going on? So he does what every good Eastern teacher does. He's going to teach Elijah a lesson, and it's going to be practical. So here's what he does. An angel comes. He feeds him. This isn't, we're going to skip this part of the story. But an angel comes, wakes him up, gives him what we think is manna. It's a cake and some, not like cake we think of cake, but like a bread cake. So we think it's manna and water. And he does it two times, and he says, you're going to travel for 40 days to Mount Horeb which is Mount Sinai, where remember Moses met with God. That's 260 miles, by the way, through the desert. 
So obviously this manna is pretty good stuff. If you can have two cakes of manna and two glasses of water, then for 40 days you can travel through the desert. That's about six and a half miles a day, which doesn't seem like a lot, but if you've never been in the desert, that's a lot. So anyway, verse 9. At that place, Mount Horeb, he came, comes to a cave and he spent the night there. And the word of the Lord comes to him again saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now don't be confused. <laughs> God, you told me to come to Mount Horeb. Let me just give you some advice. If you ever feel like God is asking you a question, he is not looking for information. Okay, in our Western world, if a teacher asks a question, they want you to give information. In the Eastern world, when I ask you a question, it's because the answer you're going to give isn't the right answer, and I want to teach you something. So God is not saying to Elijah, what are you doing here? But Elijah, like a great Westerner, he wasn't, but he did. He answers like one. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. Is he the only one left? Is there Obadiah? Is there a hundred prophets in a cave? But see, what happens to Elijah is... We go so inward, we're, it's all, a, I'm, I'm the only one that's thinking right. Bye. Man, everyone else is on the way to hell, and I am on the narrow road, and it's very narrow, my road. Yep, that's Elijah. And they're seeking to take my life. So God says, verse 11, <clears throat> he's continuing the Eastern lesson, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Now, the last time the Lord went before someone on this mountain was Moses, remember? And there was like thunder and lightning and boom, jew, boom, fire and all of that in Exodus. And yet when God passed before Moses, remember how he, what Moses saw? He saw God's goodness. Moses is like, show me your glory, fire, lightning, thunder, fire. Mm, yeah, show me your glory. God's like, I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. See, I'm not opposed to Elijah. I'm not opposed to being passionate, fervor, zealous for the Lord. But we've got to understand, Elijah isn't the kingdom. John the Baptist even wasn't the kingdom. Jesus even pointed that out. It wasn't the spirit of Elijah that was the kingdom. The, the least in the kingdom of heaven is actually greater than John the Baptist. And if we can't get out of our John the Baptist thinking and get in the tension of John the Baptist and Jesus or Elijah and Elisha, we're going to miss something. So go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and he's about to pass by. And there was a great wind so strong that splitting mountains and breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And now hear me again. It's not saying that the Lord is not in these things. He just, it, he's teaching Elijah, Elijah, you can't live by this. It, it can't be this way. And I chose this translation for a reason because this is a Hebrew idiom that we don't know how to translate and our translators are just all in frenzy about it. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. 
See, some of our translations say it's the sound of a whisper, but that's really not it. And even the sound of sheer silence isn't the right way to say it. It's just we don't know the right way to say it. And if you've ever tried to translate from another language an idiom or a phrase that just doesn't come into English, it just doesn't come, or something from English that just doesn't go into another language, you understand what's happening here. But in essence, the sound of sheer silence is what happens. And in that moment, when Elijah heard it, verse 13, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the tomb. God was in the sound of a sheer silence. And a, a voice comes to him again and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now again, when God asks a question, he's not looking for information. And if God asks you a question and you answer it, and then he demonstrates something, and then he asks you the same question, do not give the same answer. <laughs> it wasn't the right answer the first time, and it's not the right answer the second time, but Elijah gives it again. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, I'm alone left, they're seeking my, take my life away, and he's waiting for the God who, you know, brings the easy burden and the lightness to him, uh, he's just waiting for that. Oh, Lord, just, and the, and the Lord basically says to Elijah, go back the way you came. You're not supposed to be here. Go back the way you came, and you anoint a new king in Israel. Do, do your job, Elijah, as a prophet, is what God is saying. Anoint the next king. Anoint someone to succeed you, Elisha. And then, by the way, in verse 18, look at this. I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, you aren't even close to the only one. There's two things I want us to learn. One, silence and solitude is a must. Silence and solitude is a must. We cannot burn brightly for the Lord without being with him. And yes, he is everywhere all the time, but it is a deliberate choice to turn aside to him, the way Moses did at the burning bush, the way Moses did when he went into the thick darkness where God was, face-to-face -face on the mountain. Mo or Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3-5, through 5, actually talks a lot about this. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says all of us with unveiled faces, talking about Moses and the veil he put over his face, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says about Jesus, he would often withdraw to deserted places and pray. Okay, this isn't just, I have to have a prayer life. This is about learning how to live. It's more than just spending time in prayer. It's about learning how to live this unhurried, deliberate life in Sabbath, in solitude, in silence. If you missed the message about spiritual disciplines from a few weeks ago, go back and listen again. Silence and solitude is something in our culture we just avoid like the plague. And we need to relearn this discipline. The Lord has showed me a lot over the last several weeks about silence and solitude. And I really don't like it. Because it's in the silence, it's in the solitude that all kinds of stuff comes up. And here's what we're faced with when the stuff comes up. We can actually turn inward and just spiral out of control and fall into like a funk. 
Or <laughs> we can do the opposite. We can get angry and blame everybody else and be frustrated at the world and frustrated at our church and frustrated at that believer and our spouse and it's all our... And so the silence actually brings this stuff to the surface so that we can know it's there and the Lord can... We can repent of it and He can skim it off. We don't like the warnings about the, the sower and the thorns choking out the fruitfulness of the Word of God. For some of us, the reason the Word of God is not bearing fruit in our life is the busyness of our life is choking it out. Luke 21, 34, this isn't on the screen, but Jesus said, be careful that your life isn't weighed down. And we're like, by drunkenness, yes, by drunkenness. No, by excess, by busyness, just by life. And it can just literally choke out. I mean, we're going to go get some solitude. We're going camping this week, and we go camping every weekend, and we can do this, and we're just, we're, we're, but it's not really set apart to the Lord. It's just, you know, set apart to me. Isolation, here's the second thing. Solitude and silence are important. Isolation is dangerous. And isolation and solitude are not the same thing. Solitude is what happened when the word of the Lord came to Elijah to separate himself at the beginning. Isolation is what Elijah did on his own when he was afraid, when he was insecure, when he was upset, when he was frustrated, when he was angry. And those human emotions will cause us to isolate ourselves from people that are giving us a message we don't want to hear or people that aren't performing the way we want them to perform or aren't measuring up to the standard that we think they should measure up to. So we get frustrated with them and we distance ourselves from them, whether physically or just emotionally, because I don't want to hear that. They're my problem. And they might not be my problem. The Pharisees were very zealous for the word of the Lord, but the Pharisees missed something. They missed mercy. See, the word of the Lord comes to us in solitude so that with humility we can receive it and go back into the community of God's people with mercy. Elijah likes to go back into the, the kingdom of God's people with a whip. Black and white, repent or you're going to go to hell. And there's a time for that message, but it's not every time. And Elisha comes along, and he presents us with a better option. Elisha, at times, tells people they need to repent. Elisha, at times, people die because of their disobedience to God. But Elisha is a whole lot more merciful than Elijah ever was. And that's the spirit I think Jesus comes in. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who were very zealous for the Lord, very zealous for the word of God, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call not the righteous, not the people who think they're already right. I've come to call sinners. Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. That word justice is not the word of righteousness that's normally. It's justice in the sense of caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the neglected, the foreigner, the, that type of rightness, that justice. Justice, mercy, and faith. See, there's tension. I mean, there's a, there's a tension when you try to be a, a, a person of God and you try to be zealous for God. And how can you actually be overzealous for God? Yeah, you can. 
And the, the way to make sure you don't get overzealous for God is to couple it with the second commandment that's just like it. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. See, it's not just the zeal for the Lord, it's the mercy of God. It's the mercy for people. And we sometimes in our quest to be right, we get overzealous. And then we get frustrated. And then we start, I, I don't go back to church anymore. Church, they're, they're wrong. They're his bride. I don't care how wrong church is. We're, they're the bride of Christ. I read a book once called Love Jesus, Hate Church. No such thing. Impossible. You cannot do that. And you're not called to be the John the Baptist and set everybody else right. You're called to come to the table with other imperfect people in the body of Christ because you need them. And they need you. And together, as we put on the table what God is showing us or what we see as we're in the Scripture, it's like if you could just take a bird's eye view. And it's not about, okay, here's six different points of view and which one of these is the most right. I think there's a way that we have to start looking at things and see where they overlap. And the only way we get a true picture of who God is and how the church should operate is when we start being slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, slow to isolate, and we start seeing what we're supposed to be seeing. Isolation produces cynicism and criticalness, and it frustrates us, and it gets us into this idea where I'm the only one, I'm the right way, everyone else is wrong, and it produces this frustration that comes out of intimidation and comes out of insecurity is really all it is. If you know who you are in God, you don't have to defend God. <laughs> oh my goodness, people. We do not have to defend him. <laughs> we do not have to defend the honor of his name. We are called to love him and to be merciful to his people. That's what we're called to. And if God feels like he needs to defend his name, he will step up and he will defend it. Be careful. Be careful. <clears throat> the people of God always got into this problem. Remember Joshua and Moses? Hey, Moses, there's people out there that are prophesying, and they're not, with, they're not the ones that are supposed to prophesy. And he's like, don't stop them. I wish all of God's people were, were prophets. Remember the disciples? Lord, we saw people healing people, but they're not in our group. And he's like, no, if they're not against us, they're, they're for us. Oh, Lord, those Samaritans, those half-breeds, you want us to call down fire on them? And what does he say? You don't even know what spirit you're of. I have come not to condemn the world, but to bring life to the world. And you want to call down fire on who now? In 2 Kings chapter 6, I don't have time to read this story, but I'd encourage you to read it. I think this sums it up pretty well. And don't worry, we're almost finished. 2 Kings chapter 6, this is Elisha. And the king of Aram is trying to attack the nation of Israel. And every time he does, they're ready for them. And he thinks there's a traitor. Who is telling the king of Israel my secrets? And somebody's like, no, it's Elisha, the prophet. He knows your secrets, and he's like telling the king. So he goes to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6, and they surround his house, and they're going to kill him. And the servant goes outside, and he's like, ah! Elisha, there's armies all around us. And Elisha, I just picture him sitting at the table, with a cup of coffee. He's not doing that, but that's how I picture him. 
And he's like, Lord, open his eyes to see that there are more for us <laughs> than there are against us. And the servant looks out and he sees chariots of fire all around. And you would think that they were there to destroy those armies that are trying to continually attack the people of God. No, that's not what happens in the story. They get struck with blindness, the armies. And Elisha leads them, all of these armies, right into the capital city of Samaria. Right into the city. And the king of Israel is like, oh my, should I kill them? And Elisha says, no. Prepare a banquet, feed them, and send them home. What? See, there's a time for the spirit of Elijah, but guys, it is not time to call down fire on our enemies. And for some of us in the body of Christ right now, there's so much division. It's just ridiculous. I mean, the world looks on as we say, as we fight over whether women should ever speak in church or not speak in church, and I'm the right way, and you're not the right way, and you're the wrong way, and it's both sides. I mean, yeah, we could sit here today and be like, oh, it's all John MacArthur, but we treat John MacArthur just the same way he treats us, because he doesn't like Pentecostals, and you know, somebody needs to just grow up and put on the spirit of Elisha, and just start being merciful. And start realizing, I don't have it all right. I don't know. Yeah, oh, let's just find a, let's find a scripture because it's all black and white in this book. And let me tell you something. I could find a scripture in this book to prove anything you want to prove. We can twist it any way we want to twist it. You can do it. And you can be right. And you might end up like Elisha, Elijah. See, I did it. And you might be under a solitary broom tree wanting to die. I'm the only one left. There's no one in this church that gets it. There's no, trust me, I've been here 23 years. I have thought every thought I think there is to think. Oh, God, I want to die. Nobody gets this. But you know, when you sit in solitude, you shouldn't just get zeal for the Lord. You should get mercy for his people. And if you come out of the quiet place with a zeal for the Lord and you don't have compassion, you need to get back in. Or you need to get around people and just keep your mouth shut. Until the compassion of God bubbles over in your heart and you just need to start loving. That's why Jesus puts two commands in tension. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. I found myself this week in the midst of that tension. And I told people, I told someone before service, um, I was in the shower and I was just processing all of this and just all of the yuck in my own life that comes to the surface. And um, I actually found myself so overwhelmed that I just knelt and repented. I don't want to have one or the other. I need this tension. I need the zeal for God, and I need mercy for his people. Mercy for sinners and mercy for church people who don't live up to our expectations, by the way. That's people, okay, because it could be either one. Some of us love sinners, but we're just, we just are so sick of church people. Um, well, people are people. <laughs> Sinner or saint, people are people, and they need mercy. Romans 12, my last verse. 
verse <coughs> Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Listen to this. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Then do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And no, I didn't leave one thing out. That's verse by verse right there. Mercy, zeal, married. Romans chapter 12. The whole chapter does that back and forth. And some of us, we love our Elijah. We're just not fond of Elisha. And so at the end of this moment, here's what I want us to do. I want us to take two minutes, literally two minutes, 120 seconds. And I want us to think about three things in silence. Two minutes. Literally, it will be two minutes exactly. Don't get nervous. Christina will come out and close the service in two minutes. But here's what I want us to think about. Three questions. How can I better embrace solitude in silence? And I know for some of you, uh, you're like, man, I have toddlers. There's no way. There's a way. Okay, it doesn't mean you, you don't even have to go somewhere by yourself. You just have to somehow embrace solitude and silence in your day somehow. And I, I don't know because everybody's different. Like, and so if you want to talk about how, I'll, I have a cup of coffee with you and do that. But let the Lord talk to you about that. How do I better embrace it? Number two, how can I grow in zeal for the Lord and mercy for people? I need both. How do I live in the tension of those? And then number three, where do I need to repent of isolation? Some of us today need to repent of bad attitudes, criticalness, frustration, judgmentalness. It can be individual isolation, or you can be in a group. I mean, sometimes even as a church, we can isolate ourselves as a church, and we're, we're the only right church. We're, we got everything right. We're right. We're right. Everything we do is right. I mean, it can be your political party. It can be your church denomination it can be your way of living it can be your nationality it can be anything where do i need to repent of isolation so let's take two minutes holy spirit help us answer these three questions and then we'll close Father God, we thank you so much for uh, just the knowing that you help us, <laughs> that you're not only our ever-present help in times of trouble, but as we pursue you and your presence and learning to live in this tension, we can stand and know that you've gone before us and, there, and that you're meeting us there in, in these new places. 
I pray in these weeks ahead as we set out to find these places of solitude and of silence that we would just have grace to cut out the time to meet with you in that place of solitude. That this tension between mercy and love for others and zeal for you, God, that this place would become a comfortable place. That we wouldn't just live in this place on Sundays after this message or when we're focusing on you, but that this would become our lifestyle. Living in this tension, God, I pray that you would increase zeal for you in each of our lives, that we would be so zealous for you, that we would stop uh, just being so selfish and uh, self-turned in, but have zeal for you and zeal for the lost, but also increase our mercy, that we would truly become willing to lay our lives down for one another, especially the lost, that right now might spend eternity apart from you. Teach us to grow in mercy. Teach us to grow in zeal for you, God. We love you so much. We're so thankful uh, just for your goodness. And uh, we thank you for your grace to set out from here and put what we've learned today into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for all of our guests online. Thanks for everybody that came to uh, celebrate Jesus with us today in person. And again, if this is your first time here and you haven't got your gift, we have a gift for you at the Welcome Center. Uh, we're so thankful uh, that each of you came. And yeah, you guys may be blessed and we're looking forward to seeing you next week. Thanks.